Hey, Andy and Mitch, it's Mike Munzer here from the Evolution of Horror podcast. Wow, congratulations on 100 episodes. That is absolutely incredible. Uh, Keep doing what you're doing. Uh, It brings a smile to my face while in lockdown. And here's to another 100 episodes. Cheers, guys. Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Welcome to Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. As ever, I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, sometimes filmmaker, more often podcast guy. And joining us tonight, he is the director of the short film The Babysitter Murders and also the Fright Fest 2020 selection, The Mortuary Collection. It's Mr. Ryan Spindell. Ryan, good evening. Hello. 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 Thanks for having me, guys. Excited to be here. Ryan, how are you? Thanks for doing this tonight. How is isolation treating you? It is great. I'm wondering if there's sort of a moratorium on how long we have to ask everybody about the isolation process. (laughs) I was thinking about it. It's kind of like New Year's. Like, How long do you say Happy New Year before you just stop talking about it altogether? Because I feel like every email has to start with, I hope you're doing well in this trying time. <laughs> yeah, and then you're, you're signing everything off with, stay safe. I think as long as you're in it, it's fine to ask. I think once it's over and we're released from our kind of respective chambers, I think at that point, there should never be mention of isolation again. How did you cope with isolation? I'm here. I coped. It's fine. We're done. Yeah, the evidence <laughs> is in front of you. I love that. I love that. It's Being in Los Angeles is kind of surreal because it's so beautiful and nice outside all the time. You can just sort of sit in your house and kind of forget what's going on around you. And I think it could, you could also get like a little bit lackadaisical about it. So it's good to sort of like keep reminding yourself without sort of, you know, I, I kind of stopped watching the news on a regular basis because it was just sort of bumming me out on, on the reg. <laughs> but I have one roommate who's uh, obsessed with watching everything. So I've just told him to sort of let me know if the world's ending. And in the meantime, I'm just going to sort of <laughs> stick to myself and uh, try to get some stuff done. Yeah, that's good. Just pressy how close we're getting to the end of times and just give me a heads up a couple hours before it all goes to real shit. That's all Ex- I need. Exactly. I want to be my debaucherous best self for the final remaining hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, set your affairs in order. But yeah, to business, Ryan, you have chosen Burnt Offerings tonight. So uh, taking us back to 1976. Uh, why this song? This was a tough one for me because because when you guys reached out to me about finding a film that I love that other people don't like, it was tricky for me because I'm actually super critical at horror films in general. So I I actually swing (laughs) the other way. I'd rather go after films that everyone else loves. But this (laughs) one, I remember the first time I caught it, it was like, you know, there's definitely a, a level of nostalgia to it because I think I just stumbled upon it at like one in the morning on Showtime or something when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't know what to expect. And it, it sort of really left this like lasting impression on me in a way that, that I can sort of equate to some of the other classics like The Exorcist or The Changeling or some of the other films from the time period. Yeah, but it sure. kind of always shocked me that it was, it was so not talked about. Uh, and nobody seems to sort of give it much love. I Even prior to this, I kind of did a little digging to kind of see if there's been some retrospectives on it from all the horror sites. And I found a couple of small things, but nothing really sort of giving the movie the love that I think it deserves because I think it's, interestingly, it's sort of set the stage for a lot of horror that came after it. But yeah, no, I guess End of Soapbox, really interesting film. And and actually doing this was nice because I got to go back and watch it again. And, and I've kind of been thinking about it ever since I watched it about a week ago. It's, it's just really kind of stuck in my craw in some interesting ways. I watched this for the first time pretty much right now. Big shocker, <laughs> I'd never seen it before. My reaction is to this is very fresh. I think that, and we'll get into the particulars of what I thought about it as I figure them out, I suppose. <laughs> I thought this was a really striking film. It was really interesting. And I don't mind coming out of the gate and saying that I thought it was really good, really interesting. And I agree that I think that you can see, because obviously this came out, I think, 76, was it? Yep. Mm-hmm. You can totally see, like you say, Ryan, the way that it gave the way for certain things that came after it. So I'm looking forward to getting into it and kind of picking that apart a little bit. But Andy, what about yourself? Had you seen this before? How long ago? How many times, etc.? I had seen it before. I think it's worth setting out a stall here early on as well, Mitch. This conversation is going to fall more into the kind of thing that we had when we discussed films like The Ninth Configuration or Cruising more than 
ice cream man. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. <laughs> Probably a slightly more reverent tone, maybe. I think so, yeah, yeah. And, and I think certainly the film itself is more po-faced and accomplished than most other films that we do on the show. But that's not to say I didn't find some stuff that I found really amusing in there. But as to when I first <laughs> saw it, this was a film that I picked up out the video shop. Towards the end of video shops, I think, the first time I saw this, I expected something totally different. I didn't expect this real slow burning, essentially a chamber piece. Yeah. And that's what I got. And it, it was a film that kind of stuck with me because it's a haunted house film on the surface only. What you're actually dealing with here is more a living house or a vampire house, I suppose is more accurate. And I just found it a lot more interesting and in-depth than certainly it was marketed when I watched it. Yeah, I think that's fair. Ryan, we make everyone who comes on the show do one thing before we get into the kind of meat of the discussion. So whether you've heard the show before or not will determine the extent to which this blindsides you. But um, basically for the benefit of anyone who is listening to the show that hasn't seen Burnt Offerings, what we're about to do is I'm going to ask Andy to put 30 seconds on the clock. I'm going to kick you in and I'm going to ask you to give your best 30-second synopsis of the film. How do you feel about that? I feel good about it. And I'll be honest, I did my research and uh, I prepared because there are times when I hadn't <laughs> seen the film you guys are talking about and I didn't really get a good sense of it. So I want people to know what this is about. Okay, good, good. This <laughs> is what I like to hear. Okay, um, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, three, two, one. Go. So, uh, looking for some much-needed rest and relaxation, a young family rents a sprawling country mansion for the summer. But when the house itself begins to turn against them, turn them against one another, sorry, uh, they are forced to uncover its secrets or be destroyed by them. Hoo-hoo. Yeah, I'm fine with that. Yep, short, <laughs> to the point. Um, more, more scene setting than a synopsis, I would say, but I'll give you the point. <laughs> I know I, I do these all the time for work. So it's like, I think I fall back into this pattern that like, admittedly is kind of boring. Like it's actually interesting. It's fine on paper, but when I read it out loud, I'm like, well, that wasn't very fun. <laughs> <laughs> Most horror films are like that though, right? It's like a trailer. Like it's mostly the first act. It's mostly the setup. And then, you know, hilarity ensues. Yeah. Or like stuff certainly ensues. <laughs> yeah. In the case of this Absolutely. film, not so much hilarity as there are a lot of <laughs> bug-eyed hysteria, really. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the actors in the film, that's the thing. That's the thing that really struck me. I think the first time I saw it, I didn't care about actors. I just cared about like, is this story yeah. cool? Is it engaging? Now when I watch it, just the caliber of people, both the director and the actors, who are making a movie that like could easily have swung into camp. And I would say mm -hmm. that it is still pretty fun, even though they're leaning, you know, he, they're leaning heavy into this sort of uh, more emotional sort of character driven tone. It still has a lot of fun factor. And I think maybe that's what I respond to as opposed to some of the other movies of this time period really bummed me out. Like, I, I'm drawing a blank. What's the movie with Donald Sutherland? Their kid dies at the beginning. Uh, um, don't Look Now. Don't Look Now. Yes, yes. Like, those films, the films like that really bummed me out when I watched them again. So I like that this one is still kind of having fun and it's got a little bit of a wink underneath the, the high caliber actors and the sort of kind of prestige filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, Ryan, you touched on it there. Like, we do have a family here, a kind of relatively young family, uh, the Rolfs. And to summarize, so we've got Ben, Marion, and 12 year old Davy, they do seem to be getting a pretty incredible deal on this property for the summer <laughs> yeah well if only they were able to hear the score <laughs> because it's incredibly foreboding filled with dread it's very ominous um, if they could hear what we can hear, they would maybe have turned back there and then. Deal be damned. Uh, yeah. And you know what's interesting about the opening of this movie is um, I started reading the book recently. And okay. they, right. the book has <laughs> yeah. this like, yeah, it has this really fantastic opening. They're living in the city and they're living in sort of an apartment building. It's kind of like the early scenes in Poltergeist where you kind of just fall in love with the family, just like being themselves. They're living in this apartment building and they're just like, I think there's uh, someone who teaches piano on the floor below them. So there's like people playing terrible piano all day, every day. And it's kind of like driving them insane, just like the chaos of society being all around them. And so this idea of finding a, a home for the summer kind of springs out of the need to get out of the city. Um, and I thought that was like such a cool part of, of the book that I was kind of sad was missing from the movie. Cause I, I always felt like this movie has almost kind of a weirdly abrupt opening. I think it just opens with like them in the car driving. As far as I was concerned, like watching it with no knowledge of the book, I kind of just like, oh, I guess they're just coming here for a vacation home. Well, I had read that actually what happened was that they had shot this kind of 15 minute segment prior to them getting in the car and taking the trip to the house for the first time, just for the viewing. 
but uh, it was deemed boring and then sliced. So I think a lot of what you were talking about, Ryan, was actually in that stuff that didn't make it into the edit. Which makes so much sense to me, yeah, because I even watching it now, like having just recently made a film and, and the beginning of your film, it seems to almost always be this like troublesome area where you're like, when do we get in? What's too soon? Do we need to cut some of this out? And I felt when I watched it again after several years, that opening shot of them in the car, I was like, oh, this feels like they cut something. This feels like they needed to move it along. And so they just decided to lose like a whole chunk. Uh, so that's really cool. Yeah. yeah I mean, like that, that does seem to add up because you're right. It does feel very out of the blue. Yeah. No, because I, because then I, I realized they do, they actually go back to their house for a bit, right? Like that's kind of a, a non-traditional turn to take where you're sort of, you arrive at the haunted house yeah. at the beginning and then they, they go home for a while to think about it. They are given ample opportunities to not go there. I also, there's a scene where they go to the store. Is there a scene where they go to the store? Okay, I'm trying to remember if that's the book. I could be confusing the book and the movie, but I, they, there's definitely like been a conscious effort to never leave the house for the movie, except mm. for that one scene where they go home. It's an interesting choice. Mm-hmm. Like it's very much kind of within the four walls uh, for the most part. As they kind of turn up and have this initial meeting, I kind of assumed that Arnold and Rosalind Allardyce, the brother and sister that are kind of letting the place to them, I kind of assumed the way that they were introduced, they were going to be characters that we would see a little bit more of, and there was part of me that was disappointed that we didn't. <laughs> uh, you're talking about camp, actually. Like I think Burgess Meredith here, the Penguin himself, is <laughs> as close to full-on camp as we're going to get throughout this, because he's on screen for a very very little amount of time, very short amount of time. And he is uh, evil and villainous to the point that it's hilarious and transparent. I agree. That whole sequence where they're interacting with the homeowners is almost like from a different movie altogether. It reminds me of uh, House of the Devil. House of the Devil must have been inspired by this movie. It must have been. There's there's so many similarities. I agree. I think like the part of the book that I'm at right now is that that part where they're sort of meeting the Allardyces for the first time. And it is written like that. It is written to be like sort of a little bit over the top. You know, where they're like, they're almost reflecting to them themselves like oh you should see the house in summer oh boy does it change like they're really like leaning into it in a heavy way that it kind of surprises me from where the director goes later that he didn't sort of adjust it a little bit to be in keeping with the rest of the movie because it, yeah. it is like it creates this like kind of fun house feeling and then immediately gets like super dark this house is the house from phantasm the funeral home i just want to quickly talk about walker the handyman who's kind of the first person that we meet and you don't really see him again after this opening scene got a lot of time for walker although in the early running i found myself asking what the fuck have you been doing what my question to the handyman upon entering this house is i'd be like so have you done much in the way of home repairs or is this as far as you've gotten how bad was it (laughs) he's clearly been hired as a favor to a friend he's just sort of a (laughs) token handyman sure toothless filthy wearing a vest and oozing southern charm yep but just you're right it just, that, that higher reeks of nepotism because the results do not speak for themselves do you guys think that he is in on it Ooh, i think he's got to be i think he's got to be because for that house to do what it does every uh, how many years it does it i think uh you can't go unnoticed yeah like do you think that he was like trying to make repairs and the house was just sort of like rejecting that for a while <laughs> so he's just kind of <laughs> <laughs> he just sort of decided to uh to, to just kind of like sit back and like uh not take it for granted i really like the idea of him getting hired at other people's houses around the area because of the work he's done in this house that's of such a high standard yeah. and then him just turning up and just hammering holes in the walls and just like ripping up carpet and then just going and getting drunk and forgetting all about it like, i, I want to see the prequel the slapstick comedy prequel which is just him being hired at this house and him trying to fix it in the house like pulling one over on him left and right yeah yeah like <laughs> like like him just kind of being like you know what would work here a reading nook and then trying to do it and then it just not and then just come back in the morning and be like what's happened here <laughs> Kind of like a reverse of uh, The Money Pit with Tom Hanks and Shelley Long. (laughs) (laughs) That is actually so Um, awesome. I I love that so much. (laughs) Oh, it's excellent. (laughs) So the Allardyce just cut the family a good deal. And they say that there is no catch. There is obviously a catch. No Um, one ever asks enough questions, Mitch. No one ever demands the detail because it's the same thing with Jack Torrance in The Shining. He's told an oblique story about a guy who went mental and killed somebody, but he doesn't go into any more detail than that. I I want to know all the details. I want to know how at risk I am. I want to know exactly what me living in this house will entail. Same. That was another thing in the book that was uh, interesting. They definitely, Ben, the, the dad, 
he makes much more of a meal of like not wanting to rent this house. Like he's really against it partially because he thinks it's too good to be true, but partially because he has this sort of intense bad feeling about the place, which I think is really cool. And that like I, for obvious reasons has been sort of truncated in the in the film, mm-hmm. but it sort of helped us buy into the duality of the, of the two couple, the couple, you know, and the fact that she's been kind of seduced by the house. Yeah, I mean, I actually think that the casting in this is pretty strong. I think, um, I don't know that Karen Black gets it right all the time, but I think Oliver Reed's smashing it. Oh yeah, so good. Yeah, I think that he kind of really earns his money in this when it pivots mostly into the family drama elements. I think that there's some of the stuff later on where I think that he's really just exceptional. Oh man, I mean, I don't know if, I don't want to skip ahead too far, but um, the, the pool scene was the scene. <laughs> oh man, that was the one, I, I think that like, you know, back to sort of me catching this one in the morning on Showtime, I was kind of watching it. I was like, okay, an old movie, it's a little creepy. But when that scene happened, it just like scarred me for life. I, I, there's something, about you know parents attacking their children the the gate also has a sequence that sort of left an impression on me but but seeing that at a young age and sort of breaking down those boundaries that you sort of hold so sacred as a kid was really traumatizing to me yeah i mean oliver reed's a big guy and he is ragdoll in that little boy around he really is and he's he has a reputation for being a bit of a party animal and uh and kind of a wild guy anyway and that comes mm-hmm. through in the performance in the best ways in the ways that like a lot of people have dads like that and and you're young and you feel like your dad is this perfect specimen and then you get a little bit older and you realize that humans have multiple layers and it, he just brings it out in such interesting like subtle but scary ways it's so cool yeah I think it's great but you're right I think that the reason that works is partially because Oliver Reed's got such a physical presence my notes had um, repeated choke slams <laughs> <laughs> Uh, how that unfolds but yeah we find out that the catch as it were here is that um for the duration of the time that they're staying there and when i say they i mean the family as we meet them plus aunt elizabeth of course just betty davis there yeah Yeah. (laughs) betty davis to me is just such a standout presence in this movie i didn't know who she was when i first saw it there's something about her character as this sort of elderly woman with just all of this gusto and and heart i don't know she just she's she's so cool i feel like she adds a, a really nice element to the family that that you sort of need to kind of balance them all out i, I would agree with that and uh, almost every way she's kind of the satellite that kind of moves between them all and she is trying to take pressure off of marion and spend some time with a woman who is arguably a woman of her age and mrs allardyce or certainly close to her age She's trying to control her nephew, I believe, who is spiraling wildly out of control Mm -hmm. and just basically trying to keep this family unit together and happy. But at the same time, knowing something's weird and being kind of unable to convince anybody of that. Right. And then they sort of make a point to say that she's, you know, for someone of her age, she has this, she's almost overflowing with life, which makes what becomes of her all the more sort of heartbreaking because the house literally drains her before our eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like after some initial apprehensiveness from uh, Ben, partially because I think that he's just a little bit freaked out while they're there. And also while he's playing in the garden, Davy sustains a frolicking injury. Sure. Um, yeah, but, yeah. Boys uh, will be boys. <laughs> Uh, but they head home thinking about it. Ultimately, <laughs> ultimately, they go for it. And I think that like a lot of what happens in the next kind of 15, 20 minutes in the film seems to be working quite hard, to quite organically, but it seems like it's kind of laying the groundwork for this idea of after they arrive back at the house for the summer and kind of get settled in, that we've got Marion distancing herself from the family and getting more invested in the upkeep of the house and specifically with this kind of maintenance of Mrs. Allardyce. I think that a lot of this stuff plays out in a really nicely incrementally creepy way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's like the kind of opening moments i, I guess kind of the entire act one of the amityville horror as well is really slow takes its time builds up and builds up and then by the kind of act two kicking off george lutz is starting to get really creepy he's getting bags under his eyes and his behavior is totally changing but the amityville horror doesn't rush any of that stuff in the early running in a way i guess the mom character is the jack torrance of this story which is interesting yeah sure i, I was reading that this book is one of stephen king's favorite books and it's <laughs> it's interesting to see so much of this movie in the shining when you look at it all the way down to i think even in the book i don't know if they ever mentioned what ben the dad does for a living but he's a teacher as well in the book see i don't know there's just so many parallels between the two that it's like stephen king is my favorite but there's it's bordering on ripoff in some places <laughs> which i think is something that nobody would give this movie credit for there is a moment in the film certainly where marion sets aside a room for ben to go and kind of spend some time alone in and this would be his kind of refuge mm-hmm. his sanctuary um and there's very much 
Scottish front and centre on his desk, this really big typewriter. And again, it just brought back, is he a writer? Is he a teacher? What is his job here? Is he Jack Torrance? That's right. Is there even something about food, about the, the pantry being stocked with food and supplies? I Again, I yes, may be confusing there is, yeah, the book with yeah. the movie. Okay, okay, cool. Oliver Reed wasting no time firing into the bubbly. <laughs> Exactly. Like I say, I think that like ultimately what we get at the end of this period where we start seeing, it's not really a deterioration yet, I wouldn't say, in uh, Marion as much as it is kind of a curiosity of you kind of seeing her pulling away from this family dynamic that outside of her seems to be kind of settling in and solidifying almost around her or independent from her. And it's around this time though that I think that things start to take a kind of more sinister turn because it's around this time that the scene that we were talking about earlier happens. What starts out as being father-son holiday gallivanting, which I wrote down for some reason, in the pool ends with what comes within a hair of being Ben drowning, Davey. Yeah, it's horseplay, it's Mitch. That's all it is. Harmless horseplay. But what are kids for if not for terrorising? all fun and games until someone drowns a child, Andy. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is a really cool scene. I think that this works really nicely. And Ryan, like you say, I think, I mean, I saw this for the first time age 33, but I think that if I watched this when I was a kid, then I think that it would have really got under my skin. Yeah, because don't most people have had that time where you're sort of roughhousing with your dad and maybe you're getting to that age where like you have a little bit of strength so there's like becomes like a little bit rougher than it should i mean i know that that i sort of had those moments with my dad i mean he didn't quite drown me uh because i was very strong (laughs) but uh he would have if he could have wow okay I remember one time punching my dad in the bollocks. I mean, I was pretty young. Um, and punching <laughs> I was going to say, 23. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, looking back, thinking back on it right now, there was a look in his eye where he thought, I could just punch this child. I could just quite easily punch this child and I would win. I'm a grown man. There's no way this child could beat me in a fight. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of, like now as an adult, I can empathize with that. I can empathize with like this feeling like, oh, if you weren't a kid, I would just... I'd just kick the livid you. <laughs> what would actually happen if I punched you right in the teeth? <laughs> I just want to quickly touch on something that I think is really cool in the early running, and that's when Marion's constantly going through this cycle of taking up the trays to Mrs. Allardyce with her food on it. Mm-hmm. And she does this for a few days in a row, and then she realises that the food isn't being eaten, and she gets kind of understandably worried about Mrs. Allardyce run about that point. What I really like is she kind of has this panic, which I guess is understandable. I mean, if you, I don't know if anyone's ever cat-sitted or looked after anyone's pets while they've been on holiday, cat-sat. I don't yep. know if that's the right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, if I, I can only imagine that if while you're in charge of that cat and it was to pass away, you would be racked with guilt, you'd be horrified. But if you were looking after someone's house and you killed their gran... <laughs> Like, I, I would imagine that to be quite traumatic. I mean, I, I, I absolutely would not mention it. I would ride out the summer and then just run away and hope that no one ever found out. Um, but <laughs> what I really like is she has this discussion with Mrs. Allardyce through the door, this kind of, I need you to eat, you need to eat. Have you been going downstairs to eat? Mm. And then when she comes back to collect the tray the next time, some of the food's missing off it. And then it's only later on in the film that you realise what's happening there. And um, I think it's pretty cool how that is kind of seeded. Wait, can you explain to me what what is happening there? Because that's actually something I wanted to Mm. talk to you guys about. Yeah, it's made quite clear later on because she keeps going back to get this food, keeps going back to get the food. Um, none of it's been touched. She has this conversation with Mrs. Allardyce and she's already starting to get really possessive about the house and things in the house. She goes back to collect the trays this time and some of the food's been eaten. But then later mm-hmm. on in the film, you see her taking a seat and actually physically eating the food. Oh, I think I missed that. At that point, her transformation into Mrs. Allardyce has become kind of, it's already seeded and it's already embedded and in progress because she's actually the one eating the food and then she's coming back essentially as Marion and cleaning up after herself okay i mean the thing that like really stands out to me about this film is is it's sort of one of those it's just one of those haunted house movies with with almost no special effects it's like it's just all in just the way it's blocked and the way the story sort of Mm. plays out Mm. and these like subtleties i mean it doesn't even lean into sort of intense sound design like a lot of older movies do it just sort of like creates these little pockets of mystery and then it slowly kind of unravels them it's really cool that's so interesting i've seen the movie like four or five times i've never picked up on that beat i think that kind of tonally and the way that it's shot and the entire feel of it and the way that it's put together and the way that it unfolds it is brings to mind way more conventional family drama than horror to me yeah you mentioned earlier ben oliver reed was like popping open the bubbly he 
drinks a lot in the movie. Is there are they trying to say something about him having alcohol issues? Because I, I remember there's a scene where he's like in the yard doing yard work and he's like drinking a beer <laughs> and then the creepy pallbearer like drives up the driveway and he has like a little episode. And I'm now I'm also yeah. wondering was he drinking during the pool scene as well? Oh to be honest, I, I, I imagine that Oliver Reed's just drinking constantly and you just <laughs> yeah. shoot it. Um, if he happens to be drinking in a shot, fuck it, it's in the film. If that's the best take you've got and he's drinking, keep that, it. That whole thing with him drowning the kid, that was improvised. <laughs> Shortly after this, Davy and Ben reconcile after all the unpleasantness, obviously. But Mitch, you, the atmosphere's still a little bit tense and kind of in the immediate aftermath of this attempted filicide. Yeah, I think that that is fair. And uh, Davy, understandably, also now a pool skeptic, which I think I would be as well. <laughs> Uh, under the circumstances but um, I think there's the midnight poolside exchange after this between uh, Marion and Ben where Ben's come down under cover of darkness to sit by the pool and confront this incident and try and understand why he did this and try and put it behind him Marion seems kind of aggrieved on the face of it that he hasn't put this whole attempted murdering the sun thing behind him and then they go skinny dipping well one thing I don't want to let you blow past here that's important is that in the aftermath of what happens with Davy in the pool the area immediately surrounding the swimming pool kind of repairs itself overnight and no one gives a fuck <laughs> i think that kind of thing is happening a lot in the background of this movie i think this movie has a lot of subtle repairs happening that it doesn't really sort of cue us on which i think requires repeat watching yeah <laughs> um uh, yeah i think that's a cool thing because i spotted a couple of them but i'm also quite happy to admit that i almost certainly didn't catch them all but i mean sure. for all we know it could just be that very diligent stealthy handyman coming in under cover of dark yeah <laughs> And I think also just one, one more thing to, before we, we pass by it, one thing that I think is handled so beautifully um, that I feel like is sort of a testament to both these actors and the director who's sort of helping them through is that scene where he apologizes to his son. I think that there's like the obvious way I feel like a screenwriter would write that is he apologizes to his son and his son sort of reluctantly accepts. There's a moment where he's sort of, he's hesitant about his dad and his dad apologizes and he's very skeptical. And then he just breaks down and starts crying and he hugs his dad. And I'm like, oh, that is so real. Like that is all you want as a kid is to like feel like you have your dad back. That's the thing that's like troubling him more than the actual physical assault. It's the, does my dad still love me? Is my dad still here? And I think that's, I don't know, this, it's a subtle little tiny scene, but I think it's it's really effective and it's special. I, I think it's played pretty well. Yeah, I also like that you get a little glimpse into the, I guess, the relationship proper between Marion and Ben in this kind of late night exchange by the swimming pool, because you get this idea that perhaps their relationship isn't the best and it's been a little bit rocky and they certainly haven't been intimate with each other for quite a long time. And that's certainly what Ben's trying to, he's trying to inject a spark of romance back into proceedings here and doesn't go particularly well um but i feel that that's something i could have done with a little bit more of a little bit more of that tension between them i agree i agree something so it doesn't feel like it's completely driven supernaturally by the house something that's sort of like a character-based character-based problems yeah. that pre-existed the, this place yeah they came here with those problems and those problems are kind of they're not going to certainly not good anywhere and also that's it that was a big component of the first act which was most likely cut the spark being gone from their relationship and then looking not ah. only for sort of some rest and relaxation but also for maybe a little bit of romance to be injected back into their life because i know that they had been on a dry spell for a long time yeah i don't want to blow by this either because i think that like what happens next just kind of one of the more unsettling moments in there because it looks like they're about to have some kind of sexual encounter and then it becomes non-consensual and quite ugly very quickly and it doesn't dwell on that which i think it's probably better off for but then it just kind of cuts straight to the morning after where there's this kind of terseness but it's not really addressed or like they don't discuss it in the way that you kind of expect them to yes and and, and again maybe this goes back to maybe there was an entire subplot that was sort of trimmed down uh, once we lost the beginning. I would say that that is quite possible. As we kind of double back into Broadleaf, the family thing, we start to see the beginnings of a deterioration in Aunt Elizabeth here, Bette Davis's character. She is starting to run out of steam a little bit. She goes up to try and nap, decides almost kind of defiantly that she's not gonna, which feels very in step with the character. And <laughs> I think feels in step with Bette Davis herself. I think she was a notorious badass and a bit of a character to be reckoned with. I know she didn't have a lot of time for Oliver Reed. That's right, that's right. She 
was she wasn't a fan of Oliver Reed or Karen Black. There was like a story about how um what did she she said uh, Oliver Reed was the most despicable person she's ever had the misfortune of meeting because <laughs> he was like he was just notoriously just like a sort of party guy who would like party every night and and they said something there was a I read somewhere that Betty Davis would get food delivered to her room every night on like a trolley that they would leave in the hallway of the motel and uh, Oliver Reed would come home with friends after drinking and they would ride it up and down the hallway so I think like she refused to speak to him and unless they had on-screen scenes together which is interesting because I find their relationship so great I love the dynamic between the two of them the, the elderly aunt and the, the middle-aged dad and their sort yeah. of friendship I just think that's unique and cool well by the way Mitch just one other thing I wanted to touch on quickly Karen Black in this film is pregnant with that little boy that was in Invaders from Mars, which oh, we did wild. the other week. That's, <laughs> that's interesting. I want to talk super briefly about the hearse driver motif that you get yes. quite a bit through this. I think, for one thing, I think that it's an incredibly creepy visual. But also, I like the fact his presence in dream and reality kind of starts to get a little bit blurry as it goes on as well. Yeah, this character is also kind of used to herald the arrival of terrible events as well. Because this character kind of turns up round about every... He's like the Grim Reaper in a way. He turns up round about death and round about mm -hmm. any time anyone's at death's door or kicking the door open and walking through like this character's omnipresent and evil i agree it's interesting that i was reading that character was added by the director because he had when his mom at his mom's funeral there was a, a pallbearer when he was a child that he saw laughing outside the funeral and it was so disturbing to him that it sort of stuck with him his whole life and so he injected it into the movie here but what I find interesting about that is you kind of need it because you kind of need to give Ben something to do. Like he needs to have his own version of a haunting. Otherwise, he's sort of just kind of drifting around as Marion kind of like loses it. So I, I'm curious how it played without the Paul Bearer character. Yeah, how those events are signposted and heralded and things without him. I guess then he's just the hysterical Wendy Torrance. Uh, yeah, no, that's true. That's, that's really true. You know what it reminded me a lot of actually is, um, you know, in uh, Pet Cemetery how the mom character has these flashbacks to Zelda when she was a kid. Yeah. It's sort of the same device that's being used here. It's like, okay, we need one of the characters to have something that they're scared of and ideally some visual thing that we can sort of like piece throughout the movie to add more horror because there's like, no, it's just too many people talking. That's how it feels to me. Mm, that tracks, I would say. I actually think that one of my favorite creepy set pieces in the whole thing really happens here and I really like the way that it sets into motion the chain of events that lead us to the end of the film. Next up, kind of during the night we find that a gas heater has turned itself on in uh, Davy's room and also the door has been bolted shut and also the windows are jammed or locked shut yeah um mm -hmm. i think this is great i think that the entire way that this plays out is great i think that the panic is really palpable i think that it happens so abruptly that you get dragged into it very very quickly and i i personally i got a swept quite swept up in the drama of this quite quickly it's just a significant enough event when everyone's already on edge to kind of really feed into everybody's paranoia and kind of do this divide and conquer thing and it's really this i think where we start to see the proper derailment of the Aunt Elizabeth character. I think this whole thing is great. Well, there's some suspicion pointed that Aunt Elizabeth surrounding this incident with a gas leak. And um, I think that, as much as anything, like you say, much kind of starts that unraveling of her. Right, because you have to have, you, you have these set pieces that give us a thrill, but and that sort of underscore the, the house being an entity of its own. But then on top of that, these set pieces force the characters against one another too. Yeah, so they're, like you said, they're sort of being slowly divided which i think is really cool i guess a thing that i hadn't really considered when i had watched it initially as a kid was i knew that the house rejuvenated itself once they died but what's really interesting is this idea like you said about the pool it also rejuvenates itself just on their pain it's got a little bit of a pennywise angle to it where it's sort of like it likes to tenderize its meal before it feeds yeah because i guess even on a smaller level like at, i guess a minuscule level when davy falls at the start and cuts his leg walker the terrible handyman he comes <laughs> in with a dead plant because the house is covered in them that has started sprouting again yeah yeah and burgess meredith is all catty about it he's like wait a minute where are you going with that plant take another look uh-huh <laughs> 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 but um yeah i mean i, I think that um a lot of the time this, these kinds of set pieces in films like this and in stories like this kind of happen with no preamble and leave with no consequence and i think that it's a major plus point for the film as a whole that when these kind of major drivers happen it's not just to up the acne or the tension it is to drive the characters into the decisions that they end up making and stuff like that it kind of makes where this ends up going feel way more organic mm -hmm. agreed mm -hmm. agreed and elizabeth speaks perfect sense here she's the first one to really voice a desire to leave and i'm with her on this because 
this house is no place for a child. She's kind of observing it like like we are as an audience and kind of like picking up all the details. And at first she's trying to like keep the peace, but then she starts to become sort of the voice of reason. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's a decent amount of investment after this into this notion of Marion disappearing into the house kind of mentally, if you like. Um, <laughs> well, but she's now dressed like a kind of Victorian school teacher. <laughs> she's like got a shawl on and like a cameo choker and her hair's in a high bun. She looks like Miss Haversham. <laughs> <laughs> and her hair starts to go gray which is cool yeah at this point i mean i think that we're kind of right on the cusp of this film kind of not descending into madness but descending into the kind of chaos that will be the last kind of 10 or 15 minutes or so that's absolutely true match but I, I think just on that cusp my i would say arguably my favorite scene in the film takes place where ben and marion have the discussion where he realizes that there's something going on and that there's the house is exerting some kind of hold on them especially on marion and he poses the question to her like if i asked you like would you give this house up this is not our house we don't live here we're only here for the holidays the holidays are coming to an end but are you going to be able to give this house up? Yeah, um, and he even says, uh, even if you didn't believe what I'm saying, would you give it up for me? Yeah. Right, right. That's great. Yeah, that's true. Now, it also begs the question, if they were to survive the whole summer, what would happen when the homeowners come back? Would they share? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> now you're the kooky old homeowners. <laughs> Elizabeth kind of like, the, the deterioration gets rapid and ultimately we lose Elizabeth around this time. Everything that happens around this again when Ben is trying to frantically get hold of a doctor and he can't and then Marion leaves the room and immediately comes back and says, oh, one's on his way. Oh, yeah. And at this point, you know, you're just like, no, that's not right. And then obviously immediately after that, we get the, the Hearst Driver character reappears. Again, I think that this gear shifts really rapidly into stuff that's properly nightmarish. I think that this... Uh, this entire segment again is really unsettling and really really effective oh yeah i mean just the fact that she's willing to i think this was one of her last roles that she did and just as an actress of her caliber she just really lets herself like go to pot for the effectiveness of the scene which like you know despite hating her co-stars and being generally unhappy with it she like really goes for it in a ways that's like just a look on her face as the hearse driver arrives is really really unsettling i, I agree with you mm. do you think she sees the hearse driver Ooh, yes Yes, yeah, I, I feel like in that moment she sees that. Um, I think whatever the house is doing, whatever it's projecting on Ben, I think in that moment, I mean, I talked to Ella about being at death's door and then kicking the door down and walking through. That's the moment that she takes that step. I think her face and, registers quite clearly that she's certainly seen something. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, she's not looking at Ben horrified. She's looking right in his in the direction of the door. And then, of course, there's that super cool scene the next morning or, or maybe that night or maybe the next morning where... Marion goes into the greenhouse and it's just like an explosion of flowers. That's amazing. And then they and then they use those flowers to transition us to the funeral, which I guess is another sequence where they leave the house that I'd forgotten about. Crucially, they don't all leave the house. Marion stays right. back, and um, yeah, that's right. One of the best kind of straight relationship drama moments happens here when this argument afterwards happens between Marion and Ben, and Ben's always trying to keep it together because Davy's <laughs> kind of hovering around. But, is this um, the awkward dinner scene? Yes, the awkward dinner scene and kind of the immediate uh, of that. I love an awkward <laughs> dinner. I've had a few of them in my time. I also love that now that Marion's becoming this Victorian woman, she demands that her son drinks from a goblet rather than a glass. Uh. <laughs> Go get a fucking goblet! <laughs> She's gone all out. She has this sort of the, the Bride of Frankenstein hair going on. And she's <laughs> she's all the way lost. The way that the scenes kind of spin into the next scene, spin into the next scene, and everything continues to like get worse and worse. And every scene has an impact on the next. I mean, I, I agree that the scene where Ben is, is trying to stay calm, but also like reasonably pissed that she skipped his aunt's funeral, who clearly is like almost a mother character to him. It just works. It works so well. Yeah. And I mean, at this point, ultimately, I mean, this is kind of the final straw for Ben. He's resolved. He's basically said in the morning, kind of, we're leaving with or without you. I think that what's played to me is the culmination of all of this escalating creepiness and all of the house rejuvenation stuff is when Ben, rather than sleeping obviously with uh, Marion that night, he's sleeping in a chair kind of I think outside Davy's room but he wakes up to this massive commotion outside and in what I think is actually like a really cool visual as well, the house is very aggressively and very overtly rejuvenating itself, like all these old slats are falling off the roof and uh, mm -hmm. placed by these things and stuff. And as a kind of tipping point into the chaos, I think that this is amazing. I, I, I really love this. It rolls very seamlessly into this very panicked escape attempt with mm -hmm. Ben and Davey, with people walking away and all this kind of thing. And again, I think that you can see so much of what came after this as a film here. Even down to things like Evil Dead, where 
you're desperately trying to flee and nature and the environment are stopping you from doing that. That's that, that's one of the things that I, that really pinged for me as well. The vine attack scene, it predates Evil Dead by like six or seven years. Is there yeah. is yeah. this the yeah. first vine attack? Is this where it came from? The birth of the vine attack. The birth of the vine attack. There's no vine rapes, but um, yeah, baby steps. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I agree with you, Mitch. I think that that's the scene where the house is rejuvenating and we actually get to see it for the first time. It really levels up everything. I think it's like, you know, earlier I was talking about how they lean into the special effects. And I think the result is that you don't see so much that by the time you do see this, it's so welcomed and so cool and such a like, interesting yeah. to see the house actually transforming before our eyes I, I think it's so awesome and the sound design's incredible as well there's like this real roar and this kind of deep bassy hum as it's all going on it's like it's pretty amazing stuff and just as those old rickety slates are sloughing off the roof and you see the nice shiny black ones underneath it i think it's very striking i could have actually done them more it's the same that's for the remake the remake will have so much cgi house rejuvenation it'll be crazy oh yeah <laughs> 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 Ultimately, they should be gone by now, by rights. They are not. The reason for this really is that this entire situation has kind of put Ben catatonic, so Marion kind of seizes control and insists that they stay. I think that there's a lot of really cool stuff that happens towards the end here, obviously, the first of which is kind of the water going really volatile and trying to seize Davy. What I love mm-hmm. about this yep. is less to do with the actual visual of that happening, but both this and pretty much every major event between now and the end of the film the build-up to it is almost painstakingly slow, like, in a way that I think is a great strength of it. Agreed. I think, and what I find really interesting about this scene is that, you know, Davey goes into the pool, and he starts drowning, and his mom sees him through the window, and I feel like what I would expect at this point in the movie, she's so far gone, I would expect her to just watch quietly, knowing that Mm -hmm. as her son is killed, the house becomes better, and, and so does she. But instead, she freaks out, and she's trying to get out of the house, and the house won't let her out. And I think that's interesting, that that, that choice seems interesting. I guess it's nice to know that his mom is still in there, but it also feels yeah, out of character. I, I didn't get pinged for you guys. Well, I, it's not... I, I guess there is that moment where she's kind of snapped out of whatever reverie that she's in by seeing her son drowning. But a similar thing, I suppose, happens for Ben because he's in this catatonic state and mm-hmm. Davy starts to drown and he summons up the Herculean strength required to flop pointlessly out of a rocking chair. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but they both... I don't know what ha- I don't know if I maybe missed something, but... It seems like in that moment, both of them are able to put aside whatever power the house has over them and remember that they are both parents and this is their son and he is in peril and they both, to varying extents, try to spring into action to save him. Interesting. That's true because that then spins right into them agreeing to leave, right? Like that's that's the event that sort of wakes them up. Yeah, that's like they they find that moment of clarity then they go, right, I think we could all agree this is a bit fucking weird. Davy's swimming days are behind them. Um, it's only $900. Let's just get the fuck out of here. <laughs> is it possible that it was all a ploy? He knew the only way to get out of there is to pretend to drown. <laughs> I mean, I don't hate that for a theory. It's like kind of the, the one remaining voice of reason now that Aunt Elizabeth's dead. Right. <laughs> but yeah, you guys are right. Obviously, they've taken the decision to leave and uh, the final scene of the film joins them on the morning of their intended departure. I think actually, Ryan, I don't think that I don't think I've made any secret during this conversation that I found this film to be really, really great. But I think that it just earns its money in an unbelievable way in the final scene and the kind of fate that befalls these three characters. I think that this is absolutely remarkable. <laughs> it, it really is. And it it's sort of it plays really well into that classic scene that I feel like every haunted house movie has, which is like, are we gonna leave now? Are we not gonna leave? Okay, we're finally gonna leave. Let's do it. Here we go. Oh, wait a minute. One more thing. Obviously, if it's a forebearer to a lot of the things that, that we know now. But I think I remember, like I viscerally remember as a kid, that scene where she's like, oh, let me just go back in really quick and tell Mrs. Allardyce we're leaving. And I remember just like screaming inside like, no, what are you doing? Yep. <laughs> That's the end scene here, Mitch. Reminds me a lot of the end of Dead Silence. Okay. Uh, not an immediate comparator I would have drawn, but I do see what you mean. What? Yeah. H- okay. how, how does that end? I'm trying to remember. Ryan Quanton goes to visit uh, Bob Gunton again in his house. And it's kind of oh. like, it plays out like this. He goes in to visit them and he's trying to chat to him and 
it turns out that Bob Gunton's a puppet. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's had like his entire back hollowed out. By the way, <laughs> have you guys done that movie? That's such a good we have. Yes, we have. I wish I'd thought of that movie. You have? Okay, okay. There's a good episode somewhere in the archives there on that one. I, I will look for it. I, I love that movie. That movie is so much fun. Yeah, but um, she heads back inside and like I say, Ryan, it doesn't take a seasoned horror veteran to know that that is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Pretty unwise. Well, again, I think that the way that this works and the reason that this works is that it feels like she's inside for so long. Right. And then he's like, you stay here, I'm going to go in now. Which is just like, ah, just let her go. She's done for. Drive away. See if you can get past the vines. Yeah, take your chances (laughs) with the vines. And interestingly, it's like Davey, the only voice of reason left, is like then forced to sort of sit in the car while his parents are both absorbed and destroyed by the house, only to sort of get out of the car, walk around and take in the house. The voice of reason looking up and then just being crushed alive by a falling (laughs) chimney, which also takes a really long time to fall. (laughs) You really do feel like you're watching this entire thing in slow motion. Just like get out of the fucking way. You can see quite clearly it's unstable. (laughs) Like like, when I joined the conversation tonight, Andy was so Andy was kind of in my ear as I was watching the last two minutes of this. So Uh obviously by this point, just to shoot through the chronology of how this actually happens, obviously uh, Ben goes upstairs and just he goes into the attic to kind of confront Mrs. Allardyce to find that the Mrs. Allardyce figure has been replaced by his wife. Um, He is thrown from a top floor window and lands. It's it's on the windshield of the car, right? Yep. Yeah. Amazing. Smashes it. At this point, Andy appeared in my ear and I was like, everyone's dying and I have a strong feeling that the kid is about to die. And Andy. He was like what gives you that idea and i was like i feel like we've been looking at that chimney for a really long time <laughs> <laughs> that's right and i think the thing like when i saw it as a kid the pool scene was the scene that really locked me in but this ending was something I'd never seen before. I, I wasn't the most astute horror fan. I kind of avoided horror movies for a really long time. So I, I mm-hmm. this was like one of the early ones where I started kind of being able to sort of watch them without getting too scared. And when this ending happened, I was like, I, can this, can you kill the kid? You can't kill the kid. You, like, it just seemed so, it just so... <laughs> caught me off guard to, to just kill the whole family of the family that I had sort of, you know, grown to sort of, you know, love in the strange ways that it makes you love them, I guess. Kind of interesting that you should talk about avoiding horror for a long time. I did that as well. I'm a kind of relative newcomer. I am still occasionally blindsided by endings that go as bleak and as nihilistic as this one does. Killing a kid in these kinds of situations still feels like a little bit of a taboo in cinema for me. So when it happens, I do kind of still mm-hmm. feel like they're doing something mischievous. <laughs> And it really appeals to me. <laughs> Same. It's very rare for people to do it. I don't know. Yeah. That's all. It feels quite strange to speak in direct praise of killing children. <laughs> right. Because there was this whole phase where in Hollywood, you couldn't kill kids. You can't kill kids. That was like a, a big thing for a long time. And then it came out. And then everyone's like, you got to kill kids. Now you got to kill kids. So now the movies are all about kids dying. <laughs> and yeah, we end on this panning shot of the house or like one of the tables in uh, Mrs. Allardyce's sitting room and we see... I really of... love the end of this. Yeah, I think it's really cool. Same, same. What, now, what do you guys think happens to Marion? Where does she go from here? I'm assuming she just spends the rest of her days looking out that window and becoming more and more part of the house until the next person comes along and replaces her. So it's sort of like, and I think this is sort of a testament to the fact that they're definitely in on it, or at least as far as as I'm concerned, is the movie's called Burnt Offerings. And essentially the family are the sacrifice and the house is the volcano. And I guess the family are the the tribal people who have sort of offered it up. I, I'm curious what you guys think is in that room, in Mrs. Allardyce's room, because I feel like the obvious way to have played it would have been that it is an emaciated sort of husk of a woman who was the last Marion work at the house. So it's sort of like you you rent the house, you sacrifice the rest of the family, the matriarch becomes the next Mrs. Allardyce and the cycle continues. And so this idea that there's like this husk of a woman laying in this bed, barely holding on to life, but just holding on enough to keep the house going until the next crop comes in. I feel like it's such a cool mm. visual to like put into the story and to, and to give us something to, to be hidden behind that door. But I yeah. feel like the movie says there's nobody there. I feel like the movie says it's an empty room. Yeah. Mm. that's certainly the way I took it. I had it as more of this, the minute she's in that rocking chair and that door closes, she kind of becomes this intangible entity within Mm. this house. And that rocking chair is empty until the next Mrs. Allardyce sits in it. Ooh, very spooky. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, like I would not have connected those dots in that way, but now you've said it, I'm going to steal it. (laughs) (laughs) She doesn't suffer a a horrible death 
nor does the house get the benefit from her pain. She just gets absorbed. That was kind of how I saw it. The fact that these photos are there forever now is, I guess, their way of remembering people who have made this sacrifice to keep this house going. Okay. <laughs> That's a glasses half full way of looking at it. Um, is, uh... <laughs> Is there a picture of Marion uh, on the thing or is it just the other people? I can't remember. No, it's all, it's all three of them. Yeah. All three, okay. Okay, Okay, but not the not Marion, not the mom. No, 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 Marion's not there. Ooh. Interesting. <laughs> if we're going by your justification, the house doesn't even give her a damn photo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Oh, man. Still, swings and roundabouts, eh? Yeah, I know. <laughs> And with that, we're pretty much out on Burnt Offerings. Ryan, this was a hell of a selection. A really, really interesting one and one that I'm really happy that I've seen. And I, one of those things as well, I feel like I would have taken a long time to get around to on my own. I thought that this was really, really interesting. I thought it was a really effective slow burn. I kind of like the almost willful sidestepping of kind of conventional scares and things. I think that it serves the tone of the thing way better. I think performance-wise, it's pretty great. I would agree. I think that it feels a little abrupt in the beginning, hurries to get to where it needs to with the setup. But I think that pretty much after that, it's plain sailing. I think that this is great. It's a, it's a, re- a really, really great tip. I think our listeners are going to like it a lot as well. Well, yeah, they, I'm, I'm glad you like it. I, I think it's uh, cool too. Um, I, I guess I'm sort of disappointed that one of you guys didn't hate it, so we could sort of go go after it. But um, but ultimately, I, I do think it is one of those movies that so many people haven't seen that doesn't get a ton of love, but um, it's mm-hmm. definitely, mm-hmm. definitely worth watching for anybody who likes horror or, or haunted house movies or who, who who's maybe getting a little bored with the current trend of family in a, in a ghost house type of movies yeah yeah i mean that and sometimes on this show ryan we just have to throw our hands up and say there's very little that we can savage this film for there's stuff in it that's absurd enough to laugh at but ultimately right. it's an excellent film and if what we do is to bring to light films that maybe are underseen or considered to be shite, shitty, this certainly falls in the underseen category. Although I will say there is an amazing Blu-ray out from Arrow Video, um, which is well worth picking up. Oh, I'm definitely going to buy that. The amount I've been thinking about this movie since I rewatched it has been put it firmly into a, a movie I'd like to own category. Uh, and sure. I'm pretty picky about my movies I own, actually. <laughs> Not only have you convinced us, you've convinced yourself, and that's the most important. <laughs> <laughs> I walked into this um, hating this movie, but I've really come out on the other side. You're a very persuasive guy. What can I say? Uh, Ryan, before we wrap up, I want to talk a little bit about what you've been up to. So I first came across kind of you and what you do. It was either 2016 or 2017, but I caught um, The Babysitter Murders, your short, both, I believe, at Fright Fest and Celluloid Screams that year. I think the first time that we talked to each other was around the time that I was, uh, I was still writing at the time, and I had it as my favorite short that year. And I kind of been keeping an eye on what you'd been up to after that. So it was cool to get a chance to see the Mortuary Collection, your feature, at Fright Fest Glasgow uh, this year. So do you want to talk a little bit about that film? Because I thought, um, it's, I think it's a, a really, really interesting piece of work. I really, oh, really like it. Thank you. And yeah, you want to talk a little bit about that came together? Uh, yeah, sure, sure. The Mortuary Collection is an anthology movie. Um, it kind of was born out of my love for the format. Format that I feel like is a little bit of a forgotten format. Um, have you guys done any anthology mm-hmm. movies on the show? Uh, Night Train to Terror. <laughs> oh shit oh, yeah man. fuck man if you guys want to do an anthology episode i'm all in I'm, I'm i'm kind of obsessed with the format i love short form horror we talked earlier about not liking horror movies as a kid i think my one in was reading uh stephen king's short stories specifically yeah. uh and the twilight right. zone the anthology series which was the safest version of horror that i could i could take as a kid and i think it's because i watched it with my dad and sort of like one of those things where your parents sort of like usher you into the world uh, and so I've always kind of been fascinated by that sort of form of storytelling uh, as sort of a, a unique art form all its own. And so um, I've been a short filmmaker for a while, and I realized that the period of making a short film that people like and then getting a feature film out of it has sort of ended. But I still wanted to make short films because I love them. So I was like, I'll make a, a feature made of short films, and then if nobody wants to finance it, I can just start making them myself one at a time until I have, you know, both the short films that I love and uh, a feature film that's I could potentially, you know, start a career off of. Uh, yeah. And so The Mortuary Collection was sort of born out of that. I kind of took um, stories that I had written on the side and started trying to find a way to kind of compile them all together into one sort of omnibus. Um, I kind of had this freedom in that creep show is sort of the cornerstone of, of the, the genre. And it's there's like a fun mm-hmm. 
irreverentness to it that I thought was just a really interesting in for film because I didn't have to be really picky about, you know, very specific uh, oh character arcs or traditional storytelling. I could just ha- make the most fun movie I could possibly make. And so um, mm-hmm. I kind of adapted it into one feature and then uh, I just started making it so that the babysitter murders, the short you saw, was the first, was the smallest, most contained story in the feature. And so we made that first. Mm-hmm. That film did well. And I got a bunch of meetings off of that short film. And it turns out that my prior conception of short films not getting you features uh, was still true. People really <laughs> liked the short, but they still were not interested in giving me a feature job. And they definitely weren't interested in a feature of short films. Sure. Okay. And yeah. so then, yeah, so then I, I, I basically just... You know, I shopped it around for a while and uh, I was about to put the project to bed. And this one executive that I met along the way was like, hey, my boss will never make this movie, but I I found a little bit of money on the side. Do you want to make it? And I was like, yes. And so then we started piecing together the other shorts bit by bit until we had a full feature. And it was sort of one of those things where we didn't have the money to actually execute the script that we had because we started meeting with line producers. They were all basically saying, yeah, you need five times as much money as you have. A minimum just to even get started on this and uh uh-huh. we, we kind of had this moment where we we're like i think we're going to lose this money if we don't start making this movie we know how to make shorts we know how to pull all our favors and to sort of try to get something big with not a lot of money and so we basically did just that and uh, over the course of two years which i do not suggest anybody try to do <laughs> we, um, we pieced together like sometimes we would we shot a couple shorts at once and then we shot a scene and then we shot b-roll then I, I did monster effects in my living room i recreated a set in my friend's garage we kind of did everything to sort of piece it together until we had the full feature so that was the thing that you guys saw at fright fest that was a long i feel like i've been talking for 45 minutes no <laughs> no not at all i just want to say i mean i've done a fair amount in short films and had shorts play all over the place as well to varying levels of success and what i did want to say is that the feature that you've put out i think uh, i'm talking about budgetary limitations and stuff i think that it kind of belies budgetary limitations because i think it looks amazing like, and i think your production design is fantastic totally agree i don't think that you can tell by looking at it that any kind of compromise has been made really i think that it's um i think well i think it's great for a start but i think that it's a really striking looking film oh that's great well thank you guys that's really fantastic to hear i think there's a lot of amazing people sort of came together to pull it off and not for a lack of blood, sweat, and literal tears to sort of bring it to, to the point that it is. And it's it was an interesting learning lesson for me. I, I feel like when I meet with um, filmmakers and they sort of ask some advice, I say, if you're going to make your first feature, um, make one movie, not five. Um, <laughs> and that, <laughs> and I stand by that uh, to this day. Um, that being said, I'm the fact that my first feature film is a, an anthology film, and, and it's something that I'm super proud of, is kind of surreal to me because, you know, as a filmmaker, you usually kind of hate everything you do. And, and I actually genuinely love this film and, and feel like it turned out the way I wanted it to turn out. And so at the very least, that sort of gets me excited about the next one. So looking ahead then, what else do you have coming up? Is there anything you're able to talk about? Well, I mean, staying on the short form thing, obviously we've got um, <laughs> your in uh, 50 states of fright as well that's right it actually came right off of the mortuary collection as we were finishing it i ended up pitching on this new horror anthology series um, that's being produced by sam raimi called 50 states of fright and we just premiered on quibi this month and so i think there's five episodes available now as as somebody you know i'm biased because i wrote and directed one uh i did the state of oregon (laughs) it's called scared state so i'm biased obviously but i watch every kind of horror anthology thing that comes out and uh, i genuinely think that this is one of the most interesting and cinematic horror anthology shows to uh come out in a really long time and the first season is still small like as they roll into the second season i think it's going to be something uh, really worth keeping an eye on it's it's pretty special and sam raimi has been intimately involved and he's just like the sweetest guy uh, and a hero of mine as well for obvious reasons so it's kind of been a bit of a dream amazing that sounds excellent. yeah they're starting to gear up for season two i mean when this pandemic ends who knows i'm already uh, working with them on at least one episode in season two so um that's really exciting for me great that's amazing yeah that sounds brilliant well done man that sounds awesome and yeah thank you for uh taking the time out to uh come and do this with us tonight and thanks for bringing burn offerings to the table thumbs up across the board there um <laughs> where can people keep up with you on social media uh yeah i'm, I'm in i'm in all the places I'm, I'm on facebook under my name i'm on uh instagram uh i have a website trapdoorpictures.com which desperately needs an update but um links <laughs> to everything i've done can be found there and and twitter it's it's, it's all under my name R. Spindell. Yeah, definitely reach out. I'd, I'd love to feel relevant. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> and then we'll, we'll definitely do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Ryan, thanks so much. So for as fun as it is to talk about bad films, air quotes, on the show, it is every now and again nice to get faced with something that really is as good as Burnt Offerings. And it is good. There's no two ways about that. And if you haven't seen Burnt Offerings, I would absolutely recommend it. And like I said, you could do a lot worse than the Arrow Video Blu-ray that's flying around out there. Absolutely. And a big thank you to the Mortuary Collection director, Ryan Spindell, for bringing that one to our attention as well. I don't think I've actually watched it prior to tonight since I bought the Blu-ray. Oh, cool. Good reason to dig it out. Yeah, absolutely. But I guess we're done for another one. We will, however, of course, be back this Monday with another minisode. Um, we'll be doing all the usual stuff on there. We'll be taking a look at what we've been watching. My um, nightly side quest, so we'll be continuing apace. <laughs> Do you not feel much like it kind of feels like we've started again now that we've passed that hundred kind of hurdle? Yeah, a little bit. Um, it does. It does kind of feel like it feels. It feels like a fresh start of sorts. I wouldn't necessarily say like a, like that we've started from the beginning, but it definitely feels like we've kind of turned towards something else. I don't know what yet precisely, but something. <laughs> uh, of course, we will also be taking a look at your feedback and playing Mitch's pitches and letting you know everything you need to know for next week's main episode as well. However. In the meantime, we would love to hear from you and you can get in touch with us through all the usual channels, Facebook mm-hmm. and Instagram, we're Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC and you can also email Scenes at gmail.com. Yes, and as you know, we have a website, strongviolentpod.com, where you can find out all the information that you would possibly need to know about the podcast, including where you can buy merch, where you can find out about live dates as and when they're announced, fuck knows when that's going to be, and uh, yeah, just everything everything you could possibly imagine everything you ever want to know about strong language and violent scenes but we're too afraid to ask <laughs> don't be afraid just ask yeah, yeah we're all friends here we are back this monday join us then if you can in the meantime don't forget it's better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds goodbye bye you've been listening to strong language and violent scenes with andy stewart and mitch bain strong language and violent scenes theme by mitch bain production and artwork by andy stewart Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.